a king. When I say that phrase, do you think, well, I may need one, but I really don't want one. I mean, how many of you think about that? You start thinking, I I probably do need a king, but man, I've gotten to the point in my life where I think I'm pretty much in charge. And maybe when it comes to considering who God is and who Jesus is in your life, you're kind of like, well, I, I, uh, I think he's sort of king. But I kind of like to kind of have the last word on the decision. Ever do that? God, I want to, I'll do whatever you want, but I really I kind of reserve the last right of last refusal, if you will. I might do it, but then, you know, I, I don't want to be signed in for whatever you want to do, Lord, because that makes me nervous. Today we're going to talk about the king. And who is the king? Who really is the king of your life? Or said more accurately, who is the king of the world, whether you recognize it or not? That's what we want to get today. We're looking at Genesis chapter 14 as we're going through the book of Genesis. We think it's important to go through major books of the Bible because it causes you to hit all the subjects and all the scripture even the more difficult and harder to understand passages. And I want you to hold on tight because this may be a little bit difficult to understand at first. But keep this idea in your mind, who is king? And what does that mean to me? Who is king? Abram has been called by God. He said, I'm going to show you a land and I want you to go where I show you. I'm going with you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless the world through you, Abram. And Abram goes. Famine, though, when he goes, winds up in Egypt and through his own deception and lack of faith, really, he says to his wife, tell everybody you're my sister so that they won't kill me. And he does. And they take her. and They don't kill him, but they give him lots of money. And then Pharaoh's house gets a plague on it. And Pharaoh's here, take your wife and leave. And so he winds up leaving Egypt greatly enriched and having learned that God is a God who can bless even in our bumbling, foolish way. He's a God of grace. He's a God of wealth. He's the God who loves us when we deserve it the least. And he goes back to the land and he worships. He goes back to the place where he had first encountered God in the land, where God said, this is the land and I'll show it to you. And, and he, it's an amazing time of worship. But he has this nephew named Lot. And Lot is also wealthy, and because they're living on kind of scraps of land, because the Canaanites are still in the land, they don't have enough, you know, enough space for everyone. Kind of like when your relatives come and you wish you had four more bathrooms, you know? Anybody ever have that? There's never enough bathrooms, is there? I think every house should have six or eight, really. Um, maybe we should invest in porta potties out. I don't know, but you're just like. When, when relatives come, you feel like, man, this is kind of tight. This house is big. And then when they leave, you're like, oh, man, this house got a lot bigger. We love you, relatives, that came to town. Love you, relatives. Um, but Lot and, and Abram go, we don't have enough room. So Abram says to Lot, where do you want to go? Wherever you go, I'll go the opposite direction. You go north, I'll go south. You go south, I'll go north. But Lot looks off and he goes, man, look at that valley down there. I think I'm going to go live on the margins of the land where it's obvious that the land can provide the water, the fertile ground that I need. And in truth, I really won't probably have to depend on God. That's called living on the margins. And Abram says, I'm going to live in the middle of that. 
I'm going to live in the place where I have to be dependent on God because I live in the highlands, which requires water. It requires rain. It requires the blessing of God in order for me to exist. I want to live in the place where I got to depend on God. Abram's faith has grown a lot. Lot's things, Lot's faith is kind of not very present, maybe not even existing. So that's where we find ourselves in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. And the first 12 verses describe this battle or this conflict between the kings of the lower Jordan Valley around where Lot had um, had settled in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and some of the most evil places in the entire world. And so these kings down there, they decided that they weren't going to pay tribute to the king who had conquered them, a king named uh, Shedeloamar. They decided, you know, this we paid this guy tribute for 12 years, and we're done paying tribute. And so what we're going to do is we're not going to pay it anymore. So... In the 13th year, they didn't pay tribute. In the 14th year, they came after him. Shedder Lomar said, look, gathered, gathered three other kings, and they started rampaging all the way from Persia down into Palestine, and they started wiping everybody out, and they came to the valley, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the other kings came out to fight, and Shedder Lomar, they destroyed them. They beat them bad, and they took away their goods, and they also took away Lot. Abram's nephew. And they took away Lot and they and they ran away with him and then Abram feared God. And that's where we'll pick the story up in Genesis chapter 14 beginning in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Marm, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Emir. These were allies of Abram's. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I'm going to pause right here. Does it surprise anybody that Abram goes to rescue Lot? I know you would never think like this, but some of us might think, hey, look, it's not my fault the guy moved to Sodom. What did he think was going to happen? He moves into the most evil place in the world, and he gets taken captive. That's what's happened. That what that's what happens when you do stupid stuff. Anybody ever think that like that about anybody? Just me. Okay. I know some of you think that way because I've had conversations with you. I know how your heart is, but I mean, you're like, "Hey, it's not my fault. You do a stupid thing, you're gonna pay the price." That's not that's not how Abram thinks. And I know, I know those of you who are parents, you felt this before. Like, man, I wish that kid had more my role here how can i help and the heart of abram is to go after him just like your heart is how do i help what's my plan what's my strategy how am i going to go after him and abram does go after him he raises up his men 318 of them and he goes after them in pursuit as far as dan which is the northern region of the land at the time verse 15 and he divided his forces against them by night. And notice what he does. He doesn't just go charging them. He has a plan. He thinks through it. He has a strategy. He divided his forces, he divided his forces uh, against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Norman get, uh, Abram gets word that his, his nephew was hauled off and he goes after him. It's really interesting that this king, Mr. Cheddar, it's easier to call him that, right? Cheddar Loromar, that he has been undefeated. And Abram has this idea that even though there's no evidence that at this point that Abram has been any kind of a warrior or general or even a soldier, that he thinks he's going to go take Lot back from this king who has beaten everyone else. It's interesting how much his faith is grounded. He's trusting his God to defeat this king that no one else can defeat. Please remember. When you're charging off to do something, it's you're trusting God to achieve it. I don't care how good you are at it. We're trusting and we're following closely Jesus Christ. We want to see him win and him get the victory. That's who we're trusting. And that's what Abraham has figured out how to do. He goes forward. He has a, a strategic plan. He thinks through it. But he has this tremendous victory that no one else could win. It's stunning. It's almost as stunning as when Baltimore beats Kansas City this afternoon. I know it's what you guys are thinking. I get that. It's at 3 o'clock. Don't worry. Before that, at 1 o'clock, watch FAU as they're going to win this afternoon as well. So um, praise God for Brian Greenlee and Coach Hale and this whole class. So keep it up. Back to our story. Verse 17. After his return from the feet from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God of Most High. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is not really what we expect. It's what I love about scripture because the stories don't end like a fairy tale. Abram goes and defeats this king. He brings back Lot. And then really the high point of the story is this encounter that Abram's going to have with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Here's the thing. Who is Melchizedek? And what does he have to do with anything? He's not in the battle. We don't even know where he comes from. He just appears on the scene. Psalm 110, verse 4, talks about Melchizedek. It's only the second time he's mentioned. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, what in the world does that mean? Have you ever encountered that in Scripture? You go, I don't know what this means. I don't get it. I don't know why he's there. And you have to keep digging to kind of get an idea for who this person is. Hebrews 7, the other time that he's mentioned. It's mentioned in 5 and 6, but it's really explained in Hebrews 7. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham apportioned and Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. 
And he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. What in the world are we talking about? There's some theories. I'm just thinking this through. Why are we talking? Just, just stay with me. Hang in there. Are you all with me still? Yeah? Okay, praise God. I think everybody's awake. Praise God. Melchizedek, some people think he is a angel. Some people think he is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Some people think he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Probably the most likely kind of theory. However, I would submit to you that he is a human king. And let me tell you why. At the end of that passage in Hebrews, it says he is without father or mother or genealogy. What that probably is referring to is the fact that he's not a Levite. To be a priest in Israel, you had to have Levite genealogy. You had to be from the line of Levi, the son of Jacob. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is he doesn't have that genealogy. But who else didn't have that genealogy? Jesus Christ, the greatest priest king ever. So Melchizedek doesn't have the, he's a different type of priest. Also, at the end of that Hebrews passage, it says he resembles or is resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. In theology, there's something called typology, which means that there is a foreshadowing of something that will appear later. There is a picture, a type. And Joseph is kind of a typology of who Jesus would be. But this is the first one. This is Melchizedek. And it would have said here in Hebrews, if he was Jesus Christ, instead of saying he resembled the son of God, it would have said he was the son of God, most likely. And so it seems most likely that he, in fact, is a human. He is said to be the king of Salem, the king of peace. Salem is another name for Jerusalem, which is, makes a lot of sense. He comes from Jerusalem. He appears on the scene. It says he is a king forever, this order of priests. And it looks forward to Jesus, who would not have a genealogy of Levi. He would not even really have his father is God himself. Um, he is someone who is different than the Levi Levitical priest. So Melchizedek is a forerunner or a type of who Jesus would in fact be. You know what's really cool about that? Do you ever feel like you're the only one that God is working through? Or maybe your church, our church, is the only one he is working through. And praise God he's working through our church. We're seeing leaders raised up, people saved, baptized, really cool things happen. He's working everywhere else. He's working other places even. And even in Abraham's day, when he would have thought, Jesus, when God said, Abraham, I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to build a nation through you and I'm going to bless people through you. You're the father. You're the ultimate of all the Hebrews. God still had somebody else. He was already at work in Melchizedek, identifying him. And he brings him alongside Abram at just the right time. He brings him alongside Abraham and says, man, I see God at work in you. That's essentially what Melchizedek says when he blesses him. Look at that blessing again back up there in um, 
back up there in verse 19, it says, he blessed him, Genesis 14, 19. He blessed him and said, blessed be the God of Abraham, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be most high, most God most high, I can't talk today, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here's what he's saying. Abram, I got it. And he's interpreting for Abram what has just happened. I love people that can interpret life, don't you? Listen, this is what you've been through. This is what God is doing. And Melchizedek is someone who's ahead of Abraham. It's hard to believe anybody could be ahead of him. But Melchizedek is ahead of him. God is that powerful. He's that great. He can provide someone to come alongside Abraham and go, look, man, let me tell you, you're getting ahead. God is at work in you. And the victory that you just won, it wasn't because you're brilliant. Sometimes we need to hear that, don't we? The, the blessing that you're seeing happen, this victory, it's not because you were a great general. It's not because you have great genes. It's because you have a great God. He's the one who's given you this victory. That is so valuable. Has anyone ever come alongside you and said, you know what, I see God at work in you. I see God at work in you. I, I see the things that he's done in you. I see the way he's changed you. I've seen the way he's grown you. And I can tell you, it's not because of your greatness. It's because you have a great God. It's one of the most valuable things you can do for someone. You may be thinking of someone right now, you need to get a call after this service or a text and say, hey, I just want you to know, I see God at work in you. It's a powerful, powerful thing. I want to encourage you to do that. You may need to make a note right now. God has brought someone to your mind that you want to bless right now. I love how God did that for Abraham. Because you know what? At this point, he's got to feel like a lone ranger, right? There is no offspring at this point. His nephew is disinterested and far from God, apparently. He and Sarah are pretty much it. But God brings someone that's ahead of him to bless Abraham. It's a crazy thing what he does, though. It's kind of surprising what Abram does in response. Here is this king, this type that looks forward to Jesus Christ, this representative of the Most High God, this special person that, that is, is there to point him to Jesus ultimately, who tells him that his victory is from God. And what does Abram do? He gives him a tenth of everything. He gives him, if you will, it's almost like he's paying tribute, saying, you are God, you are my king, and I give you this 10% because you've given me the victory. Notice he doesn't give the tithe in order to get the victory. He gives the tithe because he already has the victory. So important for us to see. When you think of giving, you need to think that I am giving because of what Jesus has already done. Don't give and say, I'm going to give because I know God's going to give me more money. I, I know he's going to bless me with more things. If I just give, that's, listen, that's, that's wrongheaded. You don't give to get. You give because you already have. I celebrate. You're my God. You are king. You are king. You say, well, see, that, he gave a tenth. I don't think that's really required in the, in the New Testament. And I, I don't think that's, listen, I'm not going to be legalistic with you about it, but I want to ask you. Seems like, is it 
described in the Old Testament, the New Testament, when we already have the grace of Jesus, we, we get more than a chance to give that tenth. Also, for Americans, tenth is about what we spend on food. That seems about right, doesn't it? Some of you are real uncomfortable because I've actually done some work with your 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 financial people, and I know what each tenth is. Listen, don't miss the glory. Don't miss the joy of acknowledging Jesus as king financially. Don't miss it. Because he is king. He is king. Make him king of your finances as well. Just like Abraham says, man, you're king. I want to acknowledge that. Here's 10%. I'm so excited to do that. That should be your posture. Whatever he calls you to. You say, well, I can't afford that. I, I really can't, can't give hardly. Listen, I just want you to be faithful to Jesus. Look him in the eye. I want, I want to give you give you your next cent. I want to give a very meaningful and big amount. That needs to be your heart, your heart of giving. Don't miss that opportunity. So Abram gives tribute. He gives 10%. Reveals who his king is. And I would like to end the sermon there. There's one more encounter that we have to cover. There's one more king that shows up because the king of Sodom shows up. He's hosed off the tar that he apparently fell into as he ran from the the kings of Persia and he fell into a bitumen pit. And he comes out and as Abram has acknowledged that God, that God is king and that this person who represents Jesus really is represents the, the ultimate king, the king of Sodom shows up. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself, as though he's got something to negotiate with. He says, listen, hey, man, listen, you take the, the spoil, you take all the goods, but just give me my people, and we'll be split. In other words, I am really kind of even paying you tribute. I am making you wealthy. I am saying that you're our king, at least for now, like I, I wouldn't do for, for the king of Persia. That's what I'm doing. Do that, Abram. Take this, verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshol, and Marm take their share. Here's what he's saying. I'm not going to handle that one. I, I'm not going to dilute my allegiance. I'm not going to tarnish this victory. And to say that it was somehow some kind of a deal between you and me to go rescue your people. I didn't fight this battle for you. I didn't fight this battle to be your king. I fought this battle to live out who my God is and honor him. And to bring back what others have taken. You see, it's really tempting to think. It's really Never underestimate the human desire to be king. It feels really, really good, doesn't it? That's why for years uh, companies would have the, the slogan, you know, customer is king. 
But a customer is king only as long as a customer is paying. Amen? The only reason we make him king is because we're making a deal. It's kind of a trade. I'll treat you great as long as you keep buying my product. It's a deal. It's a negotiated deal. God doesn't make you king. He doesn't need to make you king. He's the king. He's the king. God makes covenants that rely on his, on him. And we'll see that next week as we talk about the covenant of Abraham in chapter 15. God doesn't make deals. Notice how Melchizedek comes out bringing blessing and bringing gifts. King of Sodom comes out bringing a deal. Listen, I'll make you king if you just take this and don't take that. Abram's like, no way. I'm not going to be indebted to you. And I'm not going to make myself king. And I'm not going to make a deal that indebts me to you. How many times in the world do you see people, they make deals and they make decisions that cause them to move away from the one true God and serve another God? It can happen in business. It can happen in relationships. It happens all the time. And the question always is, who do you acknowledge as king? And that's the question for us today. Is Jesus Christ, the one that Melchizedek Melchizedek points forward to, is he king? Is he king? Do you ever have trouble with that? I have to tell you, most days I got to remind myself, oh, wait a minute, I forgot Jesus is king. I'm not king. Nobody else is. Jesus is king. And let me give you a few things that happen when Jesus is king. First thing that happens when he's king is you're willing to go into battle to save those who have been swept away by the enemy. Probably all of you have someone in your heart right now that's not a king. Probably all of you. What's your strategy? Before the Lord, before the one who is king, what is he moving you to do? Know that you're not the one who's going to save anyone. However, you're the one that needs to step up and say, God, what do you want me to do? I will be faithful to be used by you to save those who are perishing, those who are far from you, so they can know you. So that's what happens when Jesus is king. Our hearts are moved for those who are far from us. Second, when he's king, we see that he's at work in a far bigger way than we can ever He's at work. He's doing things like raising up a Melchizedek. He's at work in places we didn't even think of. You may meet a neighbor you didn't even know was a believer. It turns out they've been praying for you. He's at work in far bigger, far more places and far bigger ways than we ever acknowledge. Third, when Jesus is king, he will occasionally send others to affirm you, to encourage you say, you know what, I've seen God at work in you, and it's amazing. What he's doing in you, he gets the, the glory of it, glory for it. Let me just tell you, he's at work in you. Third, fourth, when Jesus is king, we give in a fair way, because he's king. 
We don't have to worry about provision. We give because he is king, not to make him king, not to get him to be king because he already is king. If you're struggling in the area of giving, I just want to encourage you, you have to ask the question, who really is king? Fifth, we refuse to be that to me is the hardest thing. We refuse to take over. We refuse to get back on that throne. And we continually bring ourselves to his word and say, God, would you show me how I'm not king? The older we get, the more powerful we get, the wealthier you get, the more people report to you, the more children you have, the more you feel like you are king. But let me tell you, Jesus is king, we refuse to sell out to other kings. We refuse to make others, come. we refuse to let others come along and say, this is how you got to live, this is what you got to be. You have to please us, you're obligated to us. No, I'm not, I'm obligated to Jesus Christ. He's king. I don't want to confuse you and make you think you're king, I want to make sure you know that Jesus is my king. Have you acknowledged Jesus as king? ever acknowledged Jesus as king? That's what salvation is. It's saying to Jesus, I I repent of my sin and I want to receive your scriptures, your salvation because you are king. Does that happen in your life? Today would be a great day for that to happen. Or maybe that has happened in your life, but really you've kind of forgotten that and you've kind of operated as king and you've, you've kind of put yourself on that throne. It's Honestly, it's the natural thing to do. Maybe today you need to say, Jesus, I, I want to get back off that throne. It's not a good place for me. I'm messing stuff up. I want you to be king. I want to worship you. Oh, don't miss that opportunity. And then today, praying today that are called away from you. I know your heart's broken. Keep praying. Play the long game. It could take a long time. Be strategic. Allow the key to direct your thoughts, your motives, and your moves. Let him show you how to be a part of rescuing your soul. Lord Jesus, you are king, and I am not. Lord, I want you to be glorified. I know our leadership wants you to be glorified, and I believe most people here want you to be glorified as king. And we confess that at times, all too often, Lord, we put ourselves on that throne. It's so tempting, Lord. The world tells us. We need to rule. We need to be in charge. We need to take charge. Lord, we need to let you be in charge because you are in charge. That's the reality. Oh, God, we repent of wanting to be king. God, we pray for those who have not made you king. Oh, 
I long for everyone here to know that you're king, and I long for all of those that are represented here, that all the people that are being prayed for by the people in this room who are far from you, Lord, would you move in their lives so that they could know that you're king. Oh, we want to see that. Direct your people as to how we can be involved to help others know you and make you king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand and sing with us? And Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built. Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ
question is, what happens now? Will he be your God this week? See, he already is God. How oh, don't miss acknowledging him as that. If you have questions, I'd love to chat with you after the service. Or if you're new, I'd love to meet you. I'll be right down here in front. I'm so glad that you joined us for worship today. I look forward to seeing you this Wednesday night at 630 right here in this room. Let's pray. Father, you are the cornerstone. You are our rock. You're our savior. You are the king. We acknowledge that. We submit to you. We worship you. We invite you to use us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.